We all need basic thinking and principles in our Christian life. We need to get back to them over and over again. So often I think I'm getting too complicated. I just need to get back to the old pray and read your Bible and witness and all of this. Because if we're not careful, we sort of get the idea that we might have graduated from all those things. And of course, this isn't true. And so as I began to look at this series, using the pictures in the book of Exodus to illustrate the things that make the Christian life go, you know, the Christian life's like a wheel. It's got a hub in the center, which is Christ, and it's got spokes. And if any of those spokes are out of sync or too short or too long, then the wheel isn't going to go round, and you're going to have a bumpy journey. And we're going to be talking about what some of those spokes are and how important it is to make sure that Christ is the hub and everything's in place in our life. And I'm just going to recap for five minutes or so so that you know where I am. We talked about the war that is waging, war between good and evil. And we talked about the fact that this war has been waged since the beginning of time, since man fell into sin. And Satan came to this earth to mess the whole thing up. When did the war begin, the greatest conflict this world has ever known and will ever know? It began in Genesis, when man rebelled against God, and God became man's enemy, and the war broke out. And it's been going on ever since. And the problem is, Satan, who is God's enemy, has got a grip on the souls of men. And he wants to keep them. He's clutching them. So there's definitely a war going on. And God wants the nations to be blessed. That's his plan. He has a great plan of blessing. And his idea is that he would choose a nation, starting with one man out of whom would come this nation. His name was Abraham. And through his sons, he would bring this nation into being and bless them and keep them. He didn't choose the nation of Israel because... Actually, he says this in the Bible, because they were better than anyone else. They were bigger than anyone else. In fact, he says, you're one of the smallest little countries. And you know, when you look at that map, doesn't it ever strike you what a little tiny, tiny country Israel is? A little tiny country. And the whole nations of the world at the moment gathered around it. There has to be something more about Israel than the fact it's one little tiny country in this world. And we talked about how God had this great plan to bring blessing to the whole world. He said to Abraham, the father of this nation of Israel, in thee, from thee, shall all the nations in the world be blessed. And so he began to put his plan into operation. And his plan was to use individuals from this nation to lead the nation to be holy, to be an example, to be missionaries, that they might take God's message of this great plan of redemption, of blessing for the whole world, to the whole world. And of course, that's his plan today, that he will take individual people to implement his great plan. Now, the war is on. The lines are drawn. Satan is one side. God is another. And the person and the people that God uses are going to be under constant attack from the enemy. That's how it's been from Genesis onwards. And one of the problems God has is that this nation that he chose, full of people that he chose, full of individuals that he wanted to use, 
weren't sure whether they wanted to be God's people, whether they wanted to be part of the plan, whether they wanted to stick their necks out and get their heads shot off by the enemy. And a lot of them decided they didn't want to be God's instruments in his hands. Even the very best of them God had trouble with. Like Moses, he saved Moses when he was a little baby, if you remember the story, from extinction, from being chewed up by the crocodiles on the Nile. And he nurtured him in Pharaoh's palace. He gave him palace training. Every single thing that happened to Moses was preparation, wonderful preparation for what God had in mind. He learned how to be a soldier. He learned how to be a statesman. He learned how to stand on his own. He needed all the skills he learned in Pharaoh's palace to be the deliverer he was delivered to be. And everything that's happened in your life, everything that's happened in mine, the good and the bad, whether you were brought up in a heathen palace, like Pharaoh was or not, like Moses was or not, um, that's your palace training. That's what God has built into your personality in your life in order that you might be his instrument, his soldier, in this war that is being waged. We looked a little bit about how God called Moses. Just a very ordinary day, and he was in the desert, just like he'd been for 40 years, and walking past this little scrub bush, and suddenly he saw this bush burning, and yet not burning up. And he turned aside to see, and God arrested him and called him. It's funny how you can just be in an ordinary day and God alerts you to the fact that he wants to use you, that you are his instrument, you are his Moses. Just when you're walking along doing nothing very much, he can sort of make like pressing the alarm signal inside your spirit somehow, and you, you think, hey, there's something more going on here than the ordinary day-to-day -day things. I think about visiting the United States of America. I've never really understood what a call was. You know, you hear people say, well, I was called to the mission field, or I was called to this work or that work for God, or I was called to do this, uh, whatever it is. And I don't know if you've ever wondered what a call feels like. We were missionaries in England for 10 years, and my husband was traveling over here preaching a lot. And one day he's, he made it possible for me, after eight years he had done this on his own, I had never been to the States, for me to come just for five weeks and to see what he'd been doing, and I was so excited. And I came over to America. I didn't have a very happy first three weeks because I had a very bad cold got on the plane. By the time I got off, I, it had gone to my inner ear and I'd lost my balance. So they said, well, the one thing you mustn't do is to travel. <laughs> and we were starting a trip all over the United States preaching and teaching, or Stuart was. And uh, they said, you can't fly anywhere. So he flew and I had to drive, literally, all over the States, starting on the West Coast and all the way around. So I didn't see too much of him, <laughs> even though this was the only time I'd ever been to the States, never been with Stuart for 10 years. And the first three weeks, I went by car and he went by plane. However, it was a wonderful, wonderful five weeks. And when the time came for me to say goodbye to Stuart and go back for the rest of that three-month trip that he was on, we stood at Toronto Airport. And I remember watching all the people saying hello and goodbye. Airports are, are very happy places because everybody's greeting someone and also very sad places. They're both. 
And I remember standing there, not wanting to say goodbye to Stuart, and both of us were very quiet. One more goodbye. My life had been made up of goodbyes, and I think it always has been. And uh, he said, well, what did you think? What did you think of America? And I said, well, this might sound awfully silly, and I don't know why I'm going to say this, but I think for the very first time in my life, I know what a call is. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I don't know. All I know is I feel called to America. Just like walking through the day and Moses saw the little scrub bush, he'd seen it 40 years. And suddenly it was different. And suddenly he was alerted to something deep inside and he turned aside to see. And I went home that day and I turned aside to see what this was all about. And I began to pray, Lord, why did I have this incredible love for America and for the people and and this pull and this sense of rightness? You know, home is the will of God. Did you know that? You feel at home when you're in the middle of the will of God. And suddenly I felt at home. Yeah, this was right, fit. And that's what happened to Moses. And God said, take off your shoes where you're standing's holy ground. And you know, for the Christian, of course, that's true. Wherever you stand every day is holy ground. Because God's there. Slip off your shoes when you're in the supermarket and remind yourself of that. Anywhere you're standing, any time of the day is holy ground for the Christian. Because you and I are called to be where we are and to be who we are for him and to do things that he has planned. Part of the big plan. And God's plan is always to use a person. And after a lot of arguing, he got Moses to say, well, all right, here am I. At first he'd said, here am I, send Aaron. And then he said, here am I, send me. And it says, Moses went. Now, where did he go? Well, he went home. He met Aaron, who came out to meet him. And Aaron started off being the spokesman, if you remember. It was interesting that Moses had been telling God that he couldn't speak, even though God says, well, who made man's mouth? I'll give you the words. You just go and do what you're told. And, and he argued and argued. And in the end, God said, well, all right. I know Aaron can speak well. He'll be your mouth. You tell him what to say, and he'll speak for you if you want to do it yourself. And so Moses went home, and Aaron met him, and they decided to go and stand in front of Pharaoh. Now, let me go back to my whole picture. Satan has a grip on men's souls. Moses is delivered to be the deliverer. But he's been in the backside of the desert, and you never deliver anyone if you stay there. And some of us have been in the backside of the desert. And if you're going to grow as a Christian, and that's the overall theme of this message today, then you're going to have to get out from that desert where you've been stuck for 40 years. A lot of scraggy sheep just doing your thing. And get this sense of calling, of importance, that God wants to use you. He can use you with your neighbors. I can't reach your neighbors. You can reach your neighbors. You can't reach my neighbors. I can reach my neighbors. But we'll never do it if we're in the backside of a spiritual desert. We've got to go. We've got to grow. We've got to start and be going somewhere. And so if you remember, Pharaoh has a grip on the people of God. And that's a picture of Satan's grip on people's lives. 
And if you're going to grow as a Christian, the first thing you're going to have to do is to learn how to pray. Now, I don't mean learn how to pray for yourself. And I don't mean learn how to pray for your family, specifically your children, although all that's important. I mean how to stand in front of Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Now that's growing in prayer. And I don't know if you've been in the backside of a desert where your prayer life's concerned. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. But how far have you advanced in prayer? Do you know what it is to stand in front of the devil in the name of Jesus? Remember Moses said, well, when I get to Pharaoh, what am I going to say? What am I going to say to Pharaoh? Pharaoh's bigger than me, stronger than me. And God said, tell Pharaoh I sent you. I am. Jehovah, God, the all-powerful one. And when we stand in front of Pharaoh and tell him to let somebody go, we go in the name of Jesus. We better not go on our own. Or he'll eat us up. He'll have our lives. He'll have our head. For he's far stronger than we are. But we go in the name of Jesus. We go in the name of God. And we say to him, let my people go. Now, how much do we know about this sort of battle in prayer? Remember, we're in a war. Satan is behind a lot of the things that are happening. He has a grip on people's lives. And prayer, do you know what prayer does? It takes Satan's fingers and takes them off the people we love or the people we're praying for. It undoes his grip. Now, maybe it's going to take a lot of prayer, and you're just going to get a couple of fingers undone. And you know what happens when you start to really pray for someone who's in the grip of Satan, who doesn't belong to Christ? He tightens his grip. You can see that, if I could use the illustration of the war that we're involved in at the moment. The more you bomb the guy, the more he tightens his grip. The madder he gets the more determined he becomes. And the more you throw prayer bombs at Satan on behalf of whoever it is you're praying, don't be surprised if he tightens his grip. I remember years ago in England, there was a very famous man called Tom Reed. He got himself thoroughly converted. He had a wild brother, they'd both been wild, called Dick. And Tom began to pray for Dick. And the more he prayed the worse Dick became, just the wilder and the more profligate and the more blaspheming and the more running around with women. And so Tom would lay off for a bit and he wouldn't pray. And Dick seemed to improve a bit. And then he'd start and pray again. And Satan went like this. He never bothers. You know, if he's got somebody, he's not going to bother but don't be surprised if you really start to grow in prayer. And as you attack a stronghold, then you're going to get the enemy tightening or trying to tighten his grip. And that's exactly what happened. Moses and Aaron went and they stood in front of Pharaoh and they said, let my people go. And he tightened his grip. He said, I will not let your people go. And you remember what happened. God on behalf of Moses began to plague Pharaoh. Because remember that God is on our side. He'd said that to Moses. I'll go with you. I'll give you the words to say. You just go and do what I tell you to do. You be obedient and I'll go with you. And I want to tell you something. And he'd already told Moses, I know Pharaoh will not let you go unless I come against him with a mighty hand. 
So you can expect him to tighten his grip. Don't be surprised. Just go on praying. And to grow in prayer and to grow in a Christian is to go on until the people are free. Sin shall not have dominion over you. That's a promise of the scriptures. And if you know someone that's battling and in the grip of habit that's destroying their lives, begin to pray for them consistently, powerfully. Get a little photo album. Put their photos in it. Stuart and I, every time we're at home, we have a big photo album with rows and rows of pictures of people. And we pray through the pictures, the missionaries, the friends, the staff, and our enemies, maybe. All sorts of pictures in that album. You can make a picture album. And you attack for God's sake. But don't be surprised if the frogs and the lice and the rivers run with blood and the light and the hail like golf balls begin to come and the locusts and the flies. And if the person you're praying for or the situation just gets worse and worse and worse, be encouraged. Say, aha, it's working. It's really working. And go to it and keep at it. That is to grow in prayer. Pray on. We give up far too soon. You know when you're jogging and there's this sort of wall? Sort of, they say, that I remember vaguely when I used to jog, uh, a couple of times I went through the wall, only a couple of times. But, you know, you go through this wall and, and it's just like everybody said. Oh, you could go on for miles. And, you know, most of us stop this side of the wall where prayer is concerned. We don't go on. You come to a point of push and you say, Oh, I can't pray anymore. This is it's not working. Well, pray on. That is to be mature. If you've got somebody in mind who has a form of godliness without the power around them, if they're religious but they have no reality, if they're not really saved at all, if they're just satisfied and stuck, then pray for them. Now, Pharaoh began to propose some things. He said, well, I tell you what, I won't let the people go. Why don't you just serve God here? Now, what he was saying was, let them have a form of godliness without the power. Let them be religious without reality. I remember one of my relatives asking if I would have one of our young cousins to stay. She was having an affair with a married man. She was 15 at the time. And the family was aghast at this. They said, I don't know what's got into this kid. She's just taken off. And we, Stuart and I, were at Cape and Ray at the time at this mission center, this youth center. Now, all my relatives thought I'd gone off my head. They said, this woman's got religious mania. Poor Peggy, who was my mother, they must feel dreadful about Jill and this weird man, Stuart, that she's met. And he left the bank in a good career, and now they're doing something with this youth until their kid went wrong. Then they called us, and they said, would you, would you have her to stay for a bit? Would you try and talk some sense into her? I mean, you're religious. You're working with all these young people. And I said, oh, I'd love to. I'd love to have her. Send her to me. And just as I was getting off the phone, my aunt said to me, now, we don't want her converting. We just want her made respectable. We don't want her converting. We just want her made respectable. And I remember saying to my aunt, Auntie, I don't know any other way to make her respectable than converting her. She never came. They didn't want her converting. They didn't want her converting. And yet, you know what we've got to do? We've got to pray. You cannot serve God if you're in the grip of Satan, if you've never been converted. And that's what prayer is for.
Then Pharaoh made another proposal, Exodus 8, 28. Why don't you just stay in sight? Why don't you just stay where I can see you? Leave a little escape route so you can come back if you don't want to get off on your own. Now, this is another thing. He sees he's losing his grip on someone, and so he suggests to them, well, okay, get into Christianity. Just try it a little bit, but leave yourself a way of escape. Now, what we need to do is to help the people to see that's not going to work. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to go all the way to Canaan. You've got to leave Egypt right behind, and you've got to get out. Uh, commitment, full commitment, is the only way to help people into Christ and on with him. Don't fool them. Tell them that that's what it means. You cannot come a Christian and stay in sight of the devil and all the things that you used to do. It's got to be a turning of your back and a traveling away from it. In the question of marriage, I was talking to somebody not long ago. They said, what's it going to mean to my marriage if I become a Christian? I said, I have no idea. Hopefully you can win your husband to Christ. And she said, what happens if he doesn't like the person that I become? I said, I have no idea how he'll react. And she said, well, maybe I'll just get into it, but I won't tell him. And I said, well, that's not going to work. And here again, that's what Pharaoh said. You that are men, go and leave your family behind. That's what Satan says to people. You, you know, you don't need to involve the family. You don't need to tell the family. You don't need to tell your husband or your husband's parents or your sister-in-laws or, or anybody. Why don't you just be a Christian? You know, religion's a private thing. You keep it to yourself and you be and let them be whatever they want to be. And Moses said, that's no good. The whole family has to go. And you know, I love that thought. Because God's plan, God's intent, I believe, is that the whole family has to go. And don't say, well, I'm the only Christian in my family. Say, I'm the first Christian in my family. Because it is God's intention that the whole family comes in to the promised land. Just like it was God's intention that the whole family came into the ark. Do you remember that? The whole family was going to come into the ark. And I know because I have prayed for an unbelieving family all my life. And I know what it is to lose momentum on that, to just give up. Nothing seems to happen. They seem as gripped as they ever were. And you've prayed and you've tried and you've done this and you've done that. And it doesn't work. And the temptation for me is to say, well, I'll just be the Christian. I'll just get on and do it. And somebody else can witness to my family. Somebody else can pray to them. Who's going to pray for my family like I can pray for them? Who's going to care like I care? It's got to be you. And if you are not growing in Christ, you will not have the prayer power to see your whole family come out of Egypt. Terribly important that we grow in the Lord. Not for our own benefit only, but for God's and for the people that we love. Well, Satan wasn't getting very far, and so his last proposal was this. All right, you go if you must, Exodus 10, 24, but leave the cattle and the goods behind. But, says Moses, the cattle are needed for sacrifices. And we have to take our goods with us because we're going to camp in the desert for a little bit. You see, a Christian commitment isn't only a spiritual thing, but it's a lifestyle that touches the warp and woof of our spiritual life, 
our person, our possessions, all that we're involved with. And there again, it's a sneaky thing. Maybe you're praying for somebody that isn't a Christian, that they become one, or maybe you're praying for people that are Christians but are saved, satisfied, and stuck. And we need to pray for people like that too. Maybe they're wrestling with this thing thing. <laughs> you know, that they're Christians spiritually, but they've never let their Christianity invade their possessions and their things. I remember having a real battle over that when we were asked to come to the States and the church asked us to just sell up everything and just come and they would provide a, a nice house and everything we needed in it, which they did. And I thought that would be easy until I started to do it. And then I found out that I didn't want to be that committed. <laughs> I, I mean, I wanted to take... I just, got, I just discovered that I didn't have things, but things had me. And that was very hard for me to, to realize that that's what was happening. And that if I was going to follow Christ, that sometimes he might say, well, just pack it all up. Give it all away. Sell what you can, give it, and come. In the end, we came with two suitcases apiece. <laughs> I remember laying the children's suitcases out and, and Judy saying, well, mine isn't very big. And I said, well, it's all you're going to get. That's your two suitcases. And I said, this one's for clothes, Judy, and this one's for anything else you want. And each had two suitcases, one for clothes and one for anything they could get in that second case. Everything else had to be left. And I remember her putting her dolls on the bed and talking to them. And she said, now, you can come, but I don't think you're a fit, and I'll have to leave you. And I do want you to come. And then I saw her stuffing all these things <laughs> into her suitcase. It was hard for the children. But they got the idea and they got the message that Christian commitment means everything. It means the goods. It means the things. It's all involved. And Satan's goal is to keep you in his grip anywhere he can. And it is prayer individually that releases ourselves, and then it is prayer that we can engage on on others' behalf that releases other people. You need to know the victory first in order to help others in prayer. That's pretty obvious, but I'll say it anyway. There's a war going on, and in wartime, everybody puts their shoulders down and does the thing that really matters. And in this war, of course, there's a winner, and the Christian knows who that winner is. It's the angel of the covenant, the angel of the promise. It's the suffering servant. It's God himself. Remember at Christmas we talked about God walking down the stairway of heaven with a baby in his arms. He said to Abraham, one of your children, I'll use his body, I'll come myself. I'm coming because there's nobody big enough, powerful enough, holy enough, to win this war but me and eventually of course God did do that in the man Jesus Christ and if we're going to grow we've got to understand two things that the war is won and it was won at the cross and that Satan is not yet finished with that there are still battles going on even though the victory the end of it is understood God is the winner. Now, in the book of Exodus, you can see this in pictures. 
What was it going to take to make Pharaoh release the Israelites? The death of the firstborn, do you remember? Take a lamb, they were told. It's a picture. It's a symbol. Thousands of years later, the death of the firstborn of God would release us, just as the death of the firstborn lamb released the Israelites. The blood was put on the doorposts, if you remember that very vivid picture. And this little lamb that God told Moses about in Exodus was to remind them of what was going to happen in the future. The death of Christ was prefigured in this lamb. The lamb had to be perfect without blemish and spot. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sin of the world. Had to be kept for four days to make sure it was perfect. I always remember the tragedy I felt in the play that I wrote called Majesty when I found a little lamb, or I told somebody to find a lamb. That was my mistake, and I went back to see it the first night of the performance, just as we were to begin, and to my horror, I hadn't checked it out, and they got a black one. (laughs) And I remember looking at this black lamb saying, oh no, (laughs) and the orchestra was playing, and and, I mean, we couldn't go and look for another lamb. I mean, she said, it took me forever to find this lamb. Now you don't like it? I remember she was really upset with me. And I said, well, it's not, it's a beautiful little lamb, but it's just the wrong color. And she said, well, what color should it be? And I said, it should be white. Oh, yes, of course, she said. It should be white. It should be without blemish. It should be without spot. It's a picture of Christ. We had to powder it with talcum powder, <laughs> which was not the thing to do, really, because then it sneezed all the way across the face. Never mind. It was to be one year old. The age of innocence prefiguring Christ had to have the nature of meekness. For like a lamb before its slaughters was dumb, so he opened not his mouth. It's a picture, it's a prefiguring. And you know, if you understand the cross, then you will grow as a Christian. I hope every one of you has read a good book on the cross of Christ. John Stott's The Cross of Christ, I would recommend. Uh, you, you need to understand the cross because then you'll never be the same again. Because that will explain to you, you have been saved. You have been blessed to be a blessing. You've been saved for a purpose, to be this missionary people for the world. Now we are the Israel of God. And God intends to use the church, if you like, the Israel of God, I believe, to reach the whole world. Believers being the missionary nation. So we have to understand redemption, but we also have to understand that Satan, even though he knows he's lost, is not going to give up. Pharaoh behaved like that. And he began to pursue the people that had got away from him. And if you are a believer and you are going to be used of God, you can watch out. That's one reason I don't know whether I want to grow in Christ sometimes when I think about it. You know, the biggest arrows are kept for the soldiers on the front line. The most danger, they're the the guys that are in danger. And if you're on the front line for God in this battle, you're just an easy target here. You're going to be the first ones to receive what the rage of Satan wants to do. Satan is mad, in other words, and he's pursuing you. 
Uh, Paul uses lots of pictures. He's a raging lion walking around seeking whom he may devour. And you will find yourself pursued by Satan. And as you go on, growing on in the Christian life, you'll come to the Red Sea, a sea of impossibilities. I remember doing that myself as a young Christian, saying, oh, I never expected this. I, I didn't expect the other side of redemption to find any trouble at all. I expected once I came to Christ that I'd be in Canaan and everything would be wonderful. But it doesn't work like that. In fact, my troubles really began as soon as I accepted Christ as my Savior. What caused the problems? Well, you'll have to read the whole book of Exodus. But as you read through the book of Exodus, you'll find that as soon as they had this wonderful experience of coming through the Red Sea and all the Egyptians were killed and they were safe and they were on their way to the promised land, the troubling really began. And the Satan began to instigate trouble in the camp. And that's what will happen. There'll be trouble in the camp. This is the camp. And what Satan does is he comes too. Satan is not as powerful as God. He's like a great big angry, wounded beast. God has him on a long leash, which is comforting to know. But for his divine reasons, he lets him out on that long leash. And what he does is come to cause trouble in the camp. And what happened was as the people began to go on and grow on, they began bickering among themselves. Endless bickering. You can read about it in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10. It says, God got so fed up with them grumbling and griping and complaining. I don't know if you ever noticed, but Christians spend a lot of time doing that sort of thing. Just bickering. I don't know if you know that word. Am, am I using an English word? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, grumbling. Oh, it is American. I don't know. I've been here too long. <laughs> I think it's a good word. It says what it sounds like, doesn't it? Bicker, 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 you know. <laughs> and God says, oh, if you'd only quit complaining, you'd just complain about everything. Absolutely about everything. And what we have to do is realize that we mustn't do the devil's work for him. What were they complaining about? Read the book of Exodus and you'll find out. They started complaining about Moses. I'm sure they complained about Aaron. I'm sure they complained about Miriam. The leaders Watch it. Because Satan is so mad you've got away. He thinks, well, I'll come to the camp and I'll cause trouble. And so he will turn us against our leaders. And we'll start complaining about them. Who is this fellow that brought us into this situation? What's he now? Should have stayed where we were. We were a lot better off. And after they'd finished being angry at Moses, God said to them, listen, there's the cloud and there's the fire and I've done all these things to protect you. Remember that. You know what I do when I start complaining? I try and look through the, to the situation through that cloud. You know, the cloud is the presence of God. And what I try to do is I've got this tough situation, this person or this is giving me a lot of hassle. And what I try to do is, is to get the crowd in between me and the person, the cloud, and, and look through the cloud and, and look at it through God's eyes. And remember that it wasn't so good before. Somebody said to me, Christians do nothing but 
do all the wrong things. And I said, well, just imagine how bad they'd be if they weren't Christians. <laughs> be awful. I mean, if, if none of you were believers, do you know how bad it would be? Probably you do. So at least it's a little bit better than it would be if you didn't know Christ. There's trouble in the camp because that's what Satan does. And they were angry at Moses. And then they got angry at God in Exodus 14, 13, and 14. And God said, I am so sick of their bickering. Go forward. Tell the people to go forward, he said. And you know, sometimes I hear him saying that to me. Just go forward. Grow on. Go on. Do you, do you make New Year's resolutions? I do. I make birthday resolutions too. Decade resolutions. <laughs> Whenever I became 30, 40, 50, I spent a day in fasting and prayer. And I set my mind, my prayer, towards praying that God would make the next 10 years of my life more effective, more productive for him than any that had gone before. And that's a great way to go into the next decade. It's a great way to spend time with the Lord. And in Exodus 14 and 15, God says to the people, tell the people to go forward. Now, he told them to do that in front of the Jordan. And Jordan was pretty wide in those days. It's sort of a little trickle of a river now, but it was huge in those days. And the people looked at the Jordan like they looked at the Red Sea and said, what does he mean, go forward? Don't have any boats. We don't have any bridges. Got all our children, our cattle, our goods, our tents. And he tells us to go forward. You want to drown us all? They couldn't swim. Where were they allowed to swim? In Egypt. And God says, go forward. And it seems so impossible. You ever face something that just looks like great big river Jordan and God says to you, just go forward, go for it. And as they went forward and their toes touched the water, the waters parted. But the waters didn't part until they put their feet in it. And God sometimes has to say to you, just go on with the Lord. Whatever's happening, how impossible it seems. Let me give you a practical illustration. What about if your kids mess up? Are you going to mess up? You're just going to camp in the desert for the rest of your life because they don't go on with God? Or are you going to go forward? What is it stopping you from going on, from growing in Christ? You have to figure out what it is. And then you just keep going. And it's up to you how long it takes you to get to the promised land. See, Pharaoh represents Satan. Egypt represents sin. Canaan represents or can represent the victorious Christian life. And if you like, you can spend 40 years wandering around in your spiritual desert and wilderness, or you can get there in about three weeks. That's how long it would have taken them if they'd gone directly. Three weeks. As it was, it took them 40 years. And the frightening thing to me is that the choice is ours. What we have to do is keep our eyes on the goal and go for it, and get there. And instead of griping about our leaders, use them as mentors, use them as models. I heard about a very famous preacher. When he became a young preacher, he made a list of all the great preachers he wanted to hang around. Then he wrote them all a letter and said, if I travel to your city, could you give me one hour of your time? I just want to be around you, and I want you to talk to me, and I want you to just to, to tell me something. It, it, he felt that if he could do that, that he could hang around these mosai, <laughs> that, that something would rub off on him. I did that when I was a young Christian. 
I made a short list, not of people as big as Moses, but just people I admired in the Christian faith. And I asked them if they would give me a little bit of their time. One girl, I, I said, I know that I listen to you pray, and it overwhelms me. I don't know how to pray. I said, could I just sit in a room and you pray out loud, and, I, and then I'll learn how to do it. And, and I sat on a chair, and she just set off, and she just prayed. And that's how I learned to pray. I found a mentor. I found a Moses, because I was determined to go on. I was determined to grow in the Christian life. Find a mentor and then be a mentor for someone else. And then you'll arrive at Mara. Maybe a bitter experience, but from Mara you'll see Elam with all those palm trees and the water and the refreshment. And that's the Christian life. You're going to come to many Maras, many places of bitterness. But God will make those bitter waters sweet. He'll cast in the wood. He'll... It's a lovely picture of the cross being applied to your walk and growth as a Christian. And you'll find yourself at Elim. Funny thing about Mara and Elim is that you can see one from the other. When you're in Mara, you can see Elim. When you're in Elim, you can see Mara. And that's the balance of the Christian life. There's going to be bitter things. There's going to be sweet things. There's going to be difficult things. But the thing to do is to go on and arrive in the promised land. So if you're going to grow as a Christian, it's up to you. Know that the war is won, but know that Satan never gives up, even though he knows he's defeated. And what you've got to do is set your eyes on Jesus and be determined to get to the promised land. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your greatness, and we thank you that you choose people who feel inadequate, like Moses, Naaron, and Miriam. And you help them to deliver a whole lot of people that need to get out from the clutches of Satan. You promise to be with them. You promise to give them the power. You promise to give them the words. You give them a weapon in this war. You give them the weapon of prayer. And Lord, I don't know how much I really know. I can talk about it and I can preach about it and teach about it. But I would like to know more personally about standing in front of Pharaoh and saying, let my people go in the name of Jesus. Teach me to be a prayer warrior. Teach me to grow in the area of my prayer life, I pray. And Lord, so often we face difficulties and we get disillusioned perhaps with leaders that fall off their pedestals because... It's so much easier to follow a holy person than the Holy Spirit sometimes. And, and we do put people on pedestals, and there's a difference between having a mentor and a healthy attitude and, and worshiping people. And help us to know that difference. Don't let us make the mistakes that the children of Israel made. And remind us that these things are written in our Bible, that we might use them as good examples of how to go on and grow on in God. And above all, Lord, help us to remember that the war is won, that what it took was a cross on a hill and the Lamb of God shedding his blood, his life, that we might be redeemed, go to heaven. Help us to remember that and to understand and learn the cross. And help us also to have a very realistic realization that Satan is mad with us as soon as we begin to be effective in any area. As soon as we begin to be holy, as soon as we begin to pray effectively, as soon as we go forward, he's going to be there. But help us to look at him through the cloud. Help us to put our feet in the water and to go straight ahead and to grow, to be determined to do that, Lord. 
And help us to remember above all that we are your Israel. We are the called out people. We are the body of Christ. And that you want to use us, as it were, a missionary nation to tell the world that God's big plan is that everybody should be blessed by coming into a right relationship with him, being forgiven. For Christ's sake, amen.